This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, please send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Send me a text at 2057. Uh, coming up right now, we've got my very good friend, Dr. Don Brash. Um, he's famous because he's paired up with Casey Costello, one of your favorites. Um, we've had Casey Costello on. Every time I have her on, I get swamped with support for her. So Don's famous because he hangs out with Casey Costello. The two of them have started Hobson's Pledge, which you have to go to the webpage. You have to sign up because their work is so important to not just the prosperity of our children and our grandchildren in our country, but also the peace of our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our grandchildren and our country. So welcome, Don. Thank you very much. Good to be on. Well, it's lovely to have you because you were most famously the Governor of Reserve Bank. You're a PhD in economics. You were the leader of the National Party. Uh, you rescued the National Party from oblivion and took it within a whisker of getting government and, in fact, could have had government and been Prime Minister. You then took over the uh, ACT Party at a perilous stage and kept it alive, which has proved wonderful. And most people would say, well, you know, done a few things. I think I'll go and play bridge. But here you are engaged in, I would suggest, the deepest and biggest battle of your life, my life, and our country's history. Would you agree? In some ways, that's absolutely right, Rodney. Uh, and funnily enough, I fell into the debate. Uh, I didn't have a particular focus on this issue of racial equality when I was Reserve Bank Governor, for example. Uh, when I went into politics, my main focus was on the economy. And when I became leader of the National Party, I had five key issues, one of which was racial equality. And I gave my first major speech uh, after becoming leader on that issue thinking it was only a continuation of what the National Party had long advocated for. Uh, Bill English, before me as leader, of course, had made a number of speeches saying equal citizenship was fundamental. In fact, I recall going to a National Party conference where the big slogan across the wall was one law for all. So when I spoke to the Oriwa Rotary Club in January 2004, I thought I was simply saying what was established orthodoxy for the National Party. Uh, somehow it caught fire and it suddenly it was, was a major statement, which was new. It wasn't new in, in substance, but it, it was some way portrayed as new. And from that time on, almost, I've not been an economist. I've been a guy who's been advocating for equal uh, citizenship under the law. And I'm, I'm not unhappy about that because it's a fundamentally important issue for this country's future. Uh, you mentioned that Casey Costello and I had established Hobson's Pledge. In fact, it was slightly bigger than that. Initially, it was Hobson's Choice, which was uh, partly a reference to Governor Hobson, of course, but also a sort of a play on the Hobson's Choice reference to the fact we only have one choice about our future. Then we discovered Hobson's Choice was the brand name of a bacon company. Ah. So we had to change the name to Hobson's Pledge. 
Hobson said as the treaty was signed, we are now one people. But there were 14 of us at that point. Now, gradually, as time's gone on, some people have died, some people have, have moved away, etc. Uh, there are now four trustees, a firm Casey and I are two, and we are both spokespeople for the organization. But no, it's, it's from quite small beginnings, it's gathered a lot of support from the public. We now have close to 150,000 people signed up to Hobson's Place. Wow. And that's, uh, it's really uh, carrying some weight. That's extraordinary. And it's interesting thinking back to 2004 in your speech, because may I characterize it in this way? I'll put a hypothesis to you, Don, with the benefit of hindsight that the National Party hadn't changed, but New Zealand politics was being changed. I don't think the people had changed. I think it was a top-down thing. And so the idea was uh, those in power had decided, no, it's no longer one law for all. That's no longer the big thing in New Zealand. Not only that, they did a tactic which was to go out and to destroy you. And the attacks that you took over your Orewa speech, and as you say, with Bill and they'd been ignored when you said when you said them, they came after you. And I think, again, it's a total hype speculation, that the thought was that you would buckle because you were new to politics. And what rallied people to your cause, Don, was I'll never forget that interview with Kim Hill. And <laughs> I you, won't forget it either. <laughs> you stood your ground. And that's when people said, this guy is real. Because they've heard Winston Peters, they've heard Bill Inglis say these things. But it's felt like a politician saying it who won't do it. Do you know what I mean? But when you took this bitterly, this bitter attack on you, and in a gentlemanly way, in a polite way, explained your position, you won a lot of support. Yes, I think there's something in that. I recall that Kim Hill interview very well, too. It was a 30-minute interview from memory at 7 o'clock in the evening, primetime television watching. A lot of people saw it. I think it's also true that... Uh, the media generally was very antagonistic. You may recall the Sunday Star Times, which then, as I think is a broadsheet, uh, devoted their entire front cover to two photographs, one of me looking into the page and the other of Pauline Hanson looking at me from the other side of the page. Mm. The inference being that I was New Zealand's Pauline Hanson, and because Pauline Hanson was racist, therefore Don Brash was racist. That yes. was the inference of the thing. And um, it had the most extraordinary effect on support for the National Party. People say if we'd gone to an election at that point, National could have won because mm. National had been around 28% in the polls, suddenly jumped to 45%, and the following poll went to 48%. And th there was such an extraordinary jump that Comrade Brunton, which did the poll for TV1, assumed it was a mistake and redid the poll. And that confirmed the fact that this is an extraordinary jump. So it certainly rocketed the National Party up and indeed rocketed my uh, standing as preferred prime minister, even though I thought I was saying what is perfectly acceptable 
uh, standard Orthodox National Party policy. So, oh, and and what for a hundred years didn't even need to be said. That's right. Exactly. Um, isn't it fascinating? Because this is where we're leading to with this report. But it's fascinating how top down what's right and proper is decided in New Zealand because the media decided to paint the leader of the opposition polling at 45% as an out-and-out racist and in the most derogatory terms. And in the same way, speak derogatorily of your supporters, the people of New Zealand who are their readers. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's true. A little bit in the same sort of way that when Hillary Clinton described the supporters of Trump as deplorables, she lost yes. those people. Whatever you think of Trump, and I'm not defending Trump, but attacking people as as deplorables never never works in politics. Well, no, I disagree. I think it does. Oh, really? I think it, yes. Okay. Yes, I think it works incredibly well. I I, I um it's. No, yes, I, I I think attacking people personally is fantastic because think of it, my great example, which awoke me to sort of what's going on, was climate change because that was sort of a thing and I knew the argument didn't stack up and I read everything that I could back in the day. And it was like preposterous. It was built on cards. It was so flimsy. And there were very serious scientists, you know, that you'd look up to who were saying this is nonsense. It only exists in the models and fraudulent papers. Yet it gathered and gathered and gathered. And I remember speaking out on it and Helen Clark in Parliament calling me a climate change denier. I expected all of the media to get on top of her and attack her for heaping personal abuse at question time. No, I was the one abused. And then when I found myself walking around um, in Epsom, People say, oh, I can't vote for you because, you know, you, you don't care for the environment or you're a climate change denier. The label worked. Uh, Anti-vaxxer, if you question, you know, mandates. Uh, the river of filth. Um, racist. And not only do people not want to be science deniers or climate change deniers or racist, they actually don't want to associate people that are labelled as racist. It's an extraordinarily successful uh, tactic, which it shouldn't be, right? Um, it shouldn't be successful, but I think it is. And, and this is actually one I've got you on to talk about because I've never seen that before. It's only with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, the question you're asking me is? I think the tactic of personally attacking someone right. in New Zealand now is extremely successful. Yeah, uh, I think it's certainly true that there are a large number of people who agree with me on the question of race, 
who don't want to say it out loud. Yeah. Uh, people sometimes come up to, the, to me in the street and say, looking both ways carefully, I, I agree with you. Yeah. They don't want to be seen talking to Don Brash. <laughs> but, or, and they don't want their, maybe their wives or their husbands to know. Yeah, I've had that. Yeah. Um, and and of course, at the same time, as you get attacked, you get denied your platform. And that sometimes has happened, as you know. I mm. mean, the, the best known example was when I was banned from speaking at Massey University. Mm. Not about race specifically. I was being asked to talk about my time as leader of the National Party. Mm. Uh, race might have come up because the, the Oriwa speech was an important milestone in that uh, leadership, but uh, that was not the primary focus of the speech at all. Mm. So uh, the vice chancellor was just nervous that I might talk about race. And then, of course, we had the famous uh, Kelly J. Keane, um, who was coming to New Zealand to speak about women's rights to private spaces and to sport, yep. who was declared by politicians in the media to be a Nazi. Not yeah. only was she denied an opportunity in our media to put her position or counter position, she was denied an opportunity to speak in Albert Park. That's right. By violent thugs. Disgraceful. So, so there is a pattern across the board. What we love about you, Don, is your politeness and your naivety. Because <laughs> you always see. You can't see the skullduggery that's going on because <laughs> you assume that these are good actors. And I've long ago realised that we're dealing with, I can only think of a non-broadcastable term, but we're dealing with skunks, you know, people who are nasty. I don't know how it's orchestrated, but there's a left-wing sort of orchestrated authoritarian view, which attacked the leader of the National Party who was speaking up about one law for all, putting pictures but beside other uh, politicians and therefore implying that they were racist. Um, and less than usual, which brings us to this piece. Here you are, former Reserve Bank governor, economist, um, businessman, and You've written a surprising piece, actually, all the more surprising for you, given your politeness and conservatism, in our blog called Bassett, Brash and Hyde, and I commend that blog to, to everyone. And you've wrote a piece because you cancelled your subscription to the National Business Review, which is probably the one and only business newspaper in New Zealand that used to be highly regarded and you've said enough. And in particular, it was one article that gave you pause to think and had you saying, I will not be renewing my subscription, which is a big deal of one article, right? Yeah. I mean, this particular author, uh, Dita Deboni, has written a number of articles over the years, which I found irritating and uh, surprising for a supposedly business friendly newspaper, but this one really got my goat. It really irritated the hell out of me. And I thought, I'm not willing to subscribe to this magazine when they're promoting that kind of nonsense. So uh, it was the final straw for me. 
Uh, as I say, she's not the only one who's, to my mind, well left to centre. I saw just yesterday another uh, article by someone else who was deploring uh, the people who opposed the Auckland Council's zoning rules, uh, which I'm also strongly opposed to. But the inference was the Auckland Council were the good guys and these nasty developers who just wanted to build more houses were the bad guys. And there was a podcast by, again, Dieter Deboni and the other author. And they were very smug about the fact that they were going to stop all these nasty people who wanted to build houses because Auckland Council likes a small, intensified uh, city with no uh, urban sprawl. They're left-wing nutcases, frankly, uh, committed to having housing uh, way unaffordable for most ordinary New Zealanders. And I just thought, this is this is the MBR's really gone to the dogs. Well, take me to the article and the opening paragraph. Read it to me and our listeners. Have you got it there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the opening paragraph you want? Yes. Yeah. Dog whistling. Race baiting, call it what you will, but National and Act's premeditated, strategic, and specific targeting of anxious white voters in the lead up to the election 2023 suggests these parties will do anything to win, even if it means stoking an unstoppable race war. Stop there. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It's extraordinary that she would think that. Yep. It's extraordinary that she would write that. It's amazing it'll go through an editor. Yep. And we're not talking a blog, a left-wing blog. We're talking the National Business Review. Yep. So... National Act are sitting on close or sometimes over, sometimes under, 50% of the committed support. Yep. They have the support of 50% of New Zealanders. They're not like a fringe parties trying to get 1%. She accuses them of dog whistling. Yep. That's right. Absolutely. Well, and and Rodney, in the following paragraph, she refers to this these people as lunatic fringe. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, insane. It's breathtaking. Well, and the race baiting when, and you and I aren't involved in this in the sense that it's one thing when you're being attacked because you feel so shocked by it, but where it's national and act being attacked, fair enough, you led both parties, but you're looking at it from the outside, they're race-baiting when what they're saying is what Martin Luther King said. That's right. It's what we said. The reason was we opposed apartheid. Yep. So now to oppose apartheid is to be a dog-whistling race-baiter. Sadly, that's right. She doesn't need to explain that. Like, there's no explanation of, look, you might think it a bit odd that I'm calling out uh, parties that have mainstream support and who are advocating for one law, race baiting, but here's my reasons. Nothing. No. 
they go on that there's a thing called oh, this premeditated, strategic, and specific targeting. That's just nonsense in the sense that, of course, if you give a speech, you think about it before you give it. So I guess it's premeditated. And I guess it's strategic because you think about the five things you're going to concentrate. But then she says they're targeting white voters, right? So immediately the election is about white versus brown. Well, we know that's not true because we know there's a lot of Maori voters who support National and Act. That's right. And then she has them that they're anxious. Mm-hmm that they're worried when they don't need to be. And then she goes to say this. This, funny enough, doesn't strike me as correct English because she says, even if it means stoking an unstoppable race war, well, if if the race war is unstoppable, you don't need to stoke it. I don't understand the unstoppable race war, what the unstoppable bit means, because if it's unstoppable, it's going to happen. She says that National and Act, 50% support, will do anything to win, including stoking an unstoppable race war. What do you make of that, Don? Uh, well, as I say, it's just uh, it's just outrageous stuff. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, to, to say, as you point out, that all citizens should have equal rights is to stoke an unstoppable race war is is uh, Orwellian. <laughs> it's it's a totally upside down speech. Yeah. Um, the, she also goes on in the next paragraph, and I'll read you this, and I want you to respond. In the past few weeks alone, three issues, I think it's co-governance, road signs, um, Ipodiki, Three issues with a racial element to them have been beaten up beyond all recognition by the New Zealand Herald and seized on by National Act in a way that suggests these parties have barely moved on from the Robert Muldoon years when it comes to race relations. Beaten up beyond all recognition the New Zealand Herald, yes. which we regard as a mad left-wing rag now, is in it. But she never explains that beyond all recognition. How has Three Waters been beaten up beyond all recognition? She doesn't explain that in the article. How is it beaten no. up by all recognition? No. I mean, it's, it's just a total uh, nonsense, frankly, Rodney. Uh, and, I mean, the New Zealand Herald has been notable for not beating up on the government on this issue. Yes. Well, they're, pay, they're paid. Well, they they're paid. That's right. That's they right. They can't criticise it because they're being paid. To interpret the treaty in a particular government-approved manner. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is the NPR in receipt of government money in that way, or does it want it, I you think? I don't know. I don't know. Well, tell me. I want to know this because I feel as though, Don, if I may be so bold, that just maybe 
your good faith belief in your fellow citizens and journalists and your unshakable politeness that this might be a chink. Because she actually isn't that stupid. Uh, well, and what what is she trying to achieve by this this trick? If it's a trick, what's she trying to achieve? To win. To prompt me to cancel my sub? Absolutely <laughs> not. No, 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 no. Let me put this to you, Don. There is a left wing agenda, mm -hmm. just like there's a centre right or a right wing agenda. Mm -hmm. Our agenda is. Um, Freedom of the individual, mm -hmm. small government, limited government, low taxes, uh, markets, capitalism, and the ability to get on with our lives, one law for all. The principles of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I'm not talking about voters, I'm talking about activists, mm -hmm. typically with a BA or something. <laughs> and they are left-wing authoritarians. Mm -hmm. They want elites and state power. They want the collective to rule. They want their ideas to dominate mm -hmm. and to run the country. Mm -hmm. They, funnily enough, can't agree on how the country should be run. That's why authoritarians always collapse or end up with a tyrant who basically puts fear of God into everyone. And that tyrant ends up implementing their ideas. But in the lead up to that, the left-wing authoritarians are wanting to establish a powerful central control state. Would you accept that? Uh, yes, I would. Part of the way of doing that is to, oh, along the way, following Marx and other thinkers, so it's nothing new, they dismiss reason, science, and facts, and economics, so that what you say is a consequence of you, whether you're an oppressor or a victim. So capitalists think a certain way, workers think a certain way. Um, white men think a certain way and have power and are evil because anything that's bad that's happening is coming from that power. So they have a victim mentality, an oppressor mentality, and that trumps reason and facts because you don't reason and argue with Don Brash because he's an old, white man who's privileged. You don't argue with him because he's clever with words. 
And he uses words and economics and facts and constitutional arguments and legal and his understanding of history. And he'll overwhelm you with that. So you have to dismiss him. And you would dismiss him and his supporters by calling them names. Yep. So... And the most offensive name they can think of these days is racist. Yes. And it is offensive. Yep. I hate being called a racist. Yep. And they don't care that they've inverted it because it's effective. Yep. So if you were in a debate with Dita Deboni, you'd be listening most carefully to what she was saying and responding to her point by point. She would never give you that courtesy. Right. Because she would lose. She would lose on your terms and she'd say, your terms are wrong. Yep. Because it's Western civilization and the Enlightenment that has given us this terrible planet and all this division. Yep. Yep. And so, can you see what I'm saying? No, absolutely. I'm currently reading The War on the West which you may have read also by Douglas yes. Murray. Yes. And what you're saying is absolutely consistent with that. Uh, it's an attack on rational thought and rational argument, uh, which is which is scary. So scary, Don, that we become confused, bewildered, angry, alone, and disempowered as citizens. Because when you read this piece, you're bewildered by it, because you actually think she's mad. Yep. But what she's saying is the dominant view of those in a position of power in New Zealand. That's certainly true at the moment uh, of the current government yes. and indeed of a number of people in some of the other political parties. Yes, because whatever the other political parties think, they're mindful of the media. Mm -hmm. And they're mindful of the middle voter. So for, for Chris Luxon to win, he's got to win voters over that were voting for Jacinda Ardern. Mm -hmm. That's right. Who, read this, and are persuaded by it yep. in an osmosis way. You know what I mean? Yep. yep. In fact, I wonder, Don, I'd be interested in your view on this. Do you think if you gave the O'Rewa speech today, 
or if when you gave the Oriwa speech, if in 2004 the conditions were like they were now, you would have that uptick. Yep, that's right. And I don't know the answer to that question. Because you wouldn't have got on, Kim Hill. Well, I mean, it's interesting. When Judith Collins was leader of the National Party, yes, made two or three very strong speeches following the release of the Heipuapu report. Yes, he did. And uh, I thought they were good speeches, strong speeches. And she got dumped on from a great height, not only from the media, who accused her of racism, but I, sus- but I strongly suspect from many people in her own caucus. Um, for one reason or another, she backed off that attack. And when the national conference that year took place, these major speeches were at regional conferences of the National Party, but the national conference of the National Party took place that year, she barely mentioned that issue. And whether it was caucus pressure or whether it was focus group work they'd done to check out the general public, I don't know. But for whatever reason, she went very quiet on that issue. Mm. Rather suggests, as you say, the mood has shifted since 2004. It's fascinating, Don. Have you heard back from the NBR? No. Well, uh, yes, I have. I got an email saying, look, she's uh, one journalist. Uh, we call it the flip. I think they call it the flip side or flip. Um, they, they acknowledge that she's not um, the normal business reporter, but there's only one column per fortnight. Uh, you know, it's still a very good paper, et cetera. Uh, I frankly haven't replied to that um, because it, it is, to me, so far beyond the pale that I'm just not uh, willing to support it in any way. Um, well, it's hate speech by their own definition. Well, that's right. It is, <laughs> indeed. That's right. <laughs> and, and misinformation. Yeah, that's right. I, what, people, what, who believe in racial equality, the lunatic fringe is by definition hate speech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you see, you can see that you and I, and probably listeners, are struggling with it. Because you can't imagine a literate thinking person writing this. Well, sad, sadly, I can, because I think what we've seen in the last decade or so is a major infiltration in the, in the school system. Our kids are being fed this nonsense. Mm. So it's now become sort of orthodoxy. The Treaty of Waitangi did not as we've been taught for 100 and something years, create equal opportunity for all, Article 3 clearly states. On the contrary, as uh, a totally different theory of what the treaty actually said, totally inconsistent with the words of the treaty itself and, of course, of the speeches made at the time. But the new orthodoxy is partnership, equal representation of those with a Maori ancestor and those who don't have a Maori ancestor. I mean, it's all a absolute nonsense and utterly inconsistent with any concept of democracy. Mm. But but it's believed by some people in in relevant power positions and it's taught in our schools. And it's being taught by people like Dita Deboni mm-hmm. who know better. Yeah, I'm not sure if she knows better. I mean, she may just be playing brainwashed herself. I mean, well, that's she, a good phrase, isn't it? Well, yes, it is indeed. I mean, 
she is obviously uh, either sinister or misled, mm. seriously misled. Um, what I notice is no matter who you are, you only have time to delve into one or two issues. And the rest of it you sort of take as a given because you just don't have time to figure it out. I have no clue what the Ukrainian war is about, right? I have no idea. And most people read the news. No, well, they don't even do that nowadays. But, in you know, they sort of take on board what's happening on the radio and the news without almost thinking. And that forms your opinion of things. Yep. So I noticed that with climate change. What's the argument that we're causing, risking catastrophic global warming is a very, very sophisticated argument. It's it's not a simple thing. Yep. Trust me, Greta, Greta doesn't understand it. But if you're a lefty, this becomes lefty start saying this, and you agree with it because you're a lefty, if you know what I mean. Yep, that's right. So if you're sitting in Grey Lynn or Newton, wherever they sit in Wellington and Auckland, I don't know where, you know, they sort of, they, the details of this I'll world. Anyway. Yeah, right. the details of this world. Yeah. It's just the latest cause. It's sort of like Palestine. Yep. Or um, hate Trump or get back. So whatever the cause is, whatever Jacinda says or the Labour Party says or the left-wing leaders say, I'm hot for. Yep, that's right. And then there's been a new threshold developed where you don't even need to pretend to explain your position. You don't have to say, look, they've beaten this up beyond all recognition. You don't have to explain how Three Waters has been beaten up beyond all. Because, I mean, it was beaten up beyond all recognition. You'd say, well, look, it's just a simple change. And actually, we aren't going to have any special rights. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I know about it, right? We're going to have special rights. She doesn't say that's wrong. Yeah. Right? And so we've gone to this next step where you can just spout this, and I imagine you sit down, have your latte and your red wine with your friends, and feel very good about yourself. Because, boy, didn't you give those dog-whistling race baiters, anxious white voters, a bit of stick. The mad fringe, the deplorables, the rivers of filth. That is how they're describing us, Don. Yeah, that's right. Well, on the good news, Don, you've cancelled your subscription, which I fully support. By the way, I used to write for the NBR, and probably 10 years ago, and I'd written for them on and off since 1989. About 10 years ago, the then editor started to say, oh, sort of maybe not talk about treaty issues or Maori issues because you've sort of overdone it lately. And it was sort of started off subtle like that. And then it was no longer, don't talk about these things. This was long before the fund had ever started. Yep. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd, but maybe they want a bit of variety. Like you, I was naive and did it in good faith. And then it was, oh, 
you've written rather a lot about climate change. Maybe stop that, right? And mm-hmm. I'm looking at it and thinking, well, climate change is the biggest thing that's going to affect our economy, what the government is doing. It's sort of quite important. You could write about it every week because mm-hmm. it's that significant. Until I was left with nothing to write about, at which point I left. Mm. I didn't get deplatformed. I deplatformed myself. Mm. But um, this hasn't happened overnight with Labour. So this is going back 10 years. Yep. Um, but here's the good news. Hobson's pledge, pledge has 150,000 members. That's extraordinary. Hmm. That would be more than all the political parties have as members. Uh, well, let me be, be qualify that. Uh, On your mail list. Yeah. Mem- members is probably not the right word. They don't subscribe saying, I am a member. Yeah. No, I get that. Who, who receive our stuff and, and react to it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, I mean, National Party and Labour Party may have a large mailing list, right, as compared to members. But you're a significant organisation. Yeah. So that's where the kickback's coming. How do people sign up, Don? Uh, well, uh, the word tends to get spread almost, uh, what's the right word, uh, by osmosis is not the right, not, not the right term, but it, it spreads uh, quite widely and and uh, no time at all we find we've got uh, more people who who register as supporters uh, in some way so they don't formally sign a document saying i am hereby a supporter of hobson's pledge but uh, they they're clearly identified as people who who want to receive our material every now and again we cull that list to make sure that people are who mm-hmm. don't ever open our documents we can tell whether they're opened or not of course if they don't open at all then then we take them off the list but uh, it, the people who react in some way to our material. Well, you've got a great base there, Don, and uh, you are, you and Casey are literally doing God's work and standing up for the rights of citizenship and for a country which we should be very proud of that's colorblind and intermixes and intermarried. And it's great to look down the street or go to a sports day or go to a school. And there's absolutely no racial tension to speak of. Yeah, that's right. And it's not like we are divided. and But it's sad because the division is coming from our government and our journalists. But I repeat myself because our journalists are in the pay of the government. They're running the government's yeah. line. Yeah. Don, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having your own council moment. Let, let I, me one, one final point. Please. One of the ironies of the Heipuapu report, which was advocating radical change on this racial front, written in 2019, at that time the leader and deputy leader of National were Maori. The leader and deputy leader of New Zealand First were Maori. The deputy leader of Labour was Maori. The co-leader of the Greens was Maori. And the leader of the Act Party was Maori. To suggest that Maori somehow can't he- have their voices heard in the in the corridors of power is, of course, patent nonsense. 
And I think our Governor General at that stage. I think she was also Murray. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, Maori are more than 16% of whatever it is of Parliament. That's true. That's right. And, of course, you feel embarrassed that you're even noting it. That's right. And the it, it, that, it should be as significant as eye colour. That, that, that list of, of political leaders who were Maori, only one of them was elected to Parliament in the Maori electorate. That was Kelvin Davis or the others were elected in general electorates or on the list. We are a wonderful country. Indeed. But we have to, we have to support Hobson's pledge to preserve it. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you for your time. That was Dr. Don Brash. Um, amazing man, because he's done so much for New Zealand, and you would think that his biggest fight of his life was to tame inflation. We had to stand against industry leaders, governments, political attacks, the pain that getting inflation under control was causing, which led to stable currency and prosperity. And you think, man, that was tough. One man taking all of that. But here he is. He's really Robin to Batman, which is Casey Costello. Um, an even bigger fight, um, a more monstrous fight, and a more significant fight. So we're very, very lucky to have Don Brash, and we're very lucky to have him share his time on our show. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.